0: Hi, welcome to the engineering room. This is an additional series of longer form conversational style chats with influential people from software development. And it's meant as a kind of complement to the more regular uh, channel content. Uh, This series is sponsored by Equal Experts. Equal Experts is a product software development consultancy with a network of over a thousand experienced technology consultants globally. They increase the pace of innovation by using modern software engineering practices that embrace continuous delivery, security and operability and many of the other ideas that we talk about on this channel. So please do check out their links in the description below. My guest today is a friend who I've met on the international conference circuit. We've spent uh, many times having a beer together and arguing about software development in different parts of the world. Uh, Michael Feathers is the chief architect of Globans, the director of R7K Research and Conveyance, and an authority on working with and modernising legacy code. His book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, is cited extensively by leaders in the industry. He was a pioneer of the Agile movement and has helped hundreds of organizations from Fortune 100 companies to startups, design better software, revitalize their code and change processes. Um, Working effectively with legacy code is uh, is so well known in such a wonderful book. My brother-in-law was telling me before... I started with on, on recording this today how excited he was that i was talking to michael since working with Le, Le, effectively with legacy code has been his bible for the last six years building systems he's on his second copy because he wore out the first one mm-hmm. so michael welcome to the engineering room well thank you and and, and thank for sure. you for agreeing to have, have a chat today
1: excellent yeah i mean I look forward to this it'll be fun
0: yeah so i i i think I think of you as um, as you know uh, an XP practitioner, a, uh, an expert on architecture and design, and close to the technicalities of great design and de- you know thoughtful, uh, insightful uh, design thinking. So, how would you characterize good design in code? Do you think?
1: Oh wow! Yeah characterizing good design and code. It's kind of funny because, you know, I guess every year that you ask me, I'll have a different answer because, you know, it's one of those things that's almost like a background thought, you know, in all of my life. Um, yeah, good design, I, I guess the standard way of going and looking at this is basically easy to maintain, easy to understand, right? And I um, think I've kind of arrived at quite a bit more recently is just the notion that so much of what makes those things possible is really um kind of like an artifact of the way our minds work right it's kind of like there's um something called miller's law which sometimes people refer to as the seven plus or minus two rule like how many things can you hold in your working memory when you're trying to go and understand something and it's kind of like you know if you want a design principle that's that's a very basic one it's kind of like we want to basically have things scoped to human size to be able to go and actually work with them to be able to go and find them discover them inside large existing systems make the change we need with minimal impact on other things and you know if we can do those things then we're you know we're we're in a good state where you have a system that basically allows us to work well um so yeah that's a long-winded answer i'm sorry for that but it's you know no, no. it's kind of like, that's the way i'm kind of seeing it right now i guess yeah,
0: perfect so I, I i that 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 aligns very very profoundly with the way that i think about that as well so I, um... In my book that we were talking about before this, the, the engineering book, um, I talk about I talk about optimizing for two things, optimizing for learning and optimizing for managing complexity. And to my mind, what you've just described is is exactly the second one. You know, we need to manage complexity and we need to manage complexity to the capacity okay. that we as human beings have to, to understand things.
1: Mm-hmm yeah definitely. what was the other one you mentioned? I just missed the little piece. Uh,
0: up, optimizing for learning. so so I talk, yeah. I talk about so, so I, I talk about some ideas like iteration, feedback, experimentation, those sorts of things to optimize for learning oh, and then yeah. things like mo- modularity cohesion, separation of concerns as techniques for, for managing complexity
1: yeah, and, and yeah.
0: Or, organizing things around that but but i i i think it's interesting one of the one of the things that that i wrote about in, in my book um this is not me trying to sell my book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but but one of the things that i wrote about in my book was the idea of um automated testing testability test-driven development as a way of enhancing the quality of our designs and during my refreshing my mind about the things that you talk about i found an old conference talk that you uh, on youtube that you recorded uh, some years ago which we'll put a link in the description cool. where you were talking exactly on that topic uh, so uh, i'm going to quote you at you so every time you encounter a testability problem there's an underlying design problem could you just explain that idea a little bit
1: more? yeah sure um yeah, it's an, it's a weird thing. I just, if, if you don't mind me, like, you know, backing into it a little bit from where, no, no. It, from at least in in my recognition of it. Um, in the very early days of, like, people trying to apply unit testing and, um, and systems, um, one of the things that came up all the time is like, oh, I've got a class. I want to write a test for a method on the class. But guess what? The method is private. What do I do? Right? And it's kind of weird with that because an entire segment of the industry went on creating special add-ins to unit testing frameworks to go and say, okay, let's bypass the protection and let's do this, this, and this. And, you know, it's kind of like, and, you know, I mean, there were a lot of people who saw no problem with that. And to me, that just smelled funny. Right. And then talking to people in the nascent XP community and stuff like that, I kind of like, you know, people said, well, you know, if you have a private method you want to test, then your, you know, chances are it's like, maybe that's part of an abstraction that's begging to be pulled out. The bigger you have, and you can break it down into smaller pieces. So, the thing that was one thing to get about me is I basically am driven completely by curiosity, right? So, I couldn't figure out why that was necessarily true or why it works so often. And then I started thinking about it an awful lot and started making a list of all the different things that are like that. Like, you have a pain when you're testing something, and it turns out there's a design problem. And then, if you fix the design problem, testability becomes easy. Yeah. And um, you know, there's all sorts of things like that. So it's the thing of you know private methods. Um, gosh, what are some of the other things too? Like you make a change, you make a change. You have to go and change 15 tests in order to go and actually sort of change. You know the uh, the thing that you want to go and deal with that can be a design problem as well. Um, yeah, there's all these little things that are like that. And what I finally arrived at was seeing a conference paper from, from, what the conference was. It was a spinoff of the OOPSLA conference. And someone was making the case they mentioned a little bit earlier that um essentially good design is really an artifact of the way our minds work in a way mm-hmm. and um you know so he was going in making this case and going through and i said aha i get it you know essentially what it comes down to is that if you are um when you are trying to write tests for something you're trying to write a program to understand the program i mean that's one way of framing what we do yeah and if it's hard to write a program to understand the program it's probably hard to understand the program, right? Yeah. So it's it's that kind of thing of going and recognizing that. I mean, another one thing I want to go and add in here as well is like sometimes you're using a framework and it's hard to write code that hard to test code that uses the framework because yeah. you can't mock things out very easily. It's like, well, design problem is like you know not, not very good separation of concerns. You should minimize the connection between the framework and the thing that you have as domain code and stuff like that. And so in the talk, I give a whole list of maybe I think ten or so. You know different places where this seems to apply, and uh, use it to drive that home. So, yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's it was it was it was, it was a great talk, and I, I, I confess I didn't learn anything from it because it so strongly reinforced my prejudices and my own. Yeah, prejudices. yeah, no, it's, well, it's So, said. so, but it was a fantastic talk, and I liked the way that you broke broke down the the, the individual cases. But I, I, I think that idea of um, of kind of you know writing a program to evaluate the program that you're writing is (laughs) is 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 an interesting one because because it makes us one of the things that i love about test driven development quite so much is that it puts me in the position of a consumer of my own code because i'm going to write the test i'm going to be consuming my code and then going to say Mm. it's horrible to use so i'm going to change it so it's it's Mm. nice to use to make it easy for me to write the test and there's a pressure on me to you know I'd be rather foolish if I'm not going to expend some effort to make it easy for me to write my own tests
1: and therefore yeah, I, easier to use my own code. Totally. And I think when you're writing new code and doing TDD, that's a, a great thing with it to go and sort of like, you know, see that connection. One thing that I, so I, I quite often deal with people that have large existing code bases and trying to get tests in place, you know, for them. Right. And the thing about this that's kind of funny is that people can easily walk away with the perception that testing is just hard because they're trying to test code that was never designed to be tested. And it's kind of like I said, no, you know, once you sort of like see that the pain you're experiencing when you're testing um, has a real root to it, then basically it's almost like having, you know, your tests are almost like a mentor in a way. It's kind of like going and telling you, teaching you about good design just in the process of encountering pain and thinking about what you could have done alternatively when you were designing the system or something else
0: yeah, yeah. I, I, I i i i again i I think I say the same thing but in different different words one of mm-hmm. the ways that I talk about this is that it just gives us almost instant feedback on the quality of our design yeah. and and i've that's probably the thing that I value most in test and development more more than almost anything else is that i don't really if if you're a talented software designer and, and an experienced software developer you've probably got some thoughts and ideas and opinions on, on 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 what you know how to make a good design but i don't think anything else gives you quite the same level of fast instant visceral feedback that writing a test and finding it hard to write your test
1: yeah you know it, it, it's weird cuz i you know i've tried to dig back and figure out well hey where did all this stuff come from and of course like you know Kent back and work cunningham and yeah. Very very early pioneers the XP and stuff like that, and I don't recall whether one of them said this or I just kind of like said, oh, I'll put two and two together. But you know, their early work was like in, a, in small talk, right? And essentially, yeah. it, it, not quite a REPL, but you'd have something called the transcript window, and you can just try things out, right? Yeah. And I thought, you know, in a way, this thing of going in, doing unit testing is a way of going in, sort of like building a REPL for, for quite often statically typed languages, and you're able to try things out in this test harness. Yeah, and then of course the great thing is that we have durability. It's kind of like those things can live forever too. Um, but yeah, the ability to play a bit in a very in a way where it's easy to fail and not hurt things is just like a great affordance that testing gives us too. You know? Yeah. So 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 I I I think
0: that both of us would probably think of ourselves as as um, kind of devoted TDD practitioners you know we're we're both pretty committed to that being the best way of doing doing things and therefore presumably without me putting words in your mouth you know you like I wish that it was more widely adopted um is this one of the the barriers do you think that that the fact that this is principally so I, I think the implication of what we're saying is that this is this is principally about the quality of design this is probably you know good designers um maybe uh, find yeah. investing easier uh, and poorer designers find it harder maybe 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 that's the barrier to entry because learning design good design is difficult
1: yeah i i wonder you know because I, I think that i feel like there's two other things of it as well one is um what i call the one more thing problem which is kind of like, I think it's easier for it's easy for many people who have been in the industry for a long period of time to think, "Wow, I can just introduce this practice the people do this practice are going to get an amazing benefit. But the thing is, for the average developer in the trenches, they're thinking about all the things that they need to go and do. And you're just giving them one more thing, right? Yeah. That one more thing really has to pay for itself. And they have to be able to go and sort of see how it pays for itself in order to go and add that to the list of all the work that they need to do that, you know, they're really being evaluated on. And um I think we're constantly running against that in the space yeah. of software development um, so I think there's that aspect of it, and the other thing too, I think is that um testing requires you to think a bit more abstractly about your code, or at least you're you're kind of like instead of saying "I'm going to think about the problem and solve the problem," you have to think first about how to articulate a test for the problem, yeah. and then so you're moving one level back right and I think for some people there's um Maybe an impatience or maybe not really seeing the connection of okay, well, if I write the test, the code is going to come and it's going to be okay. But it feels like um, uh, you know, what's the old thing? People used to go and make ships in bottles and you're know, using the yeah. tweezer thing like that. At least that's the, the metaphor. It's like, okay, I'm doing things at a distance in order to go and create the thing that I want. I think that's counterintuitive for people sometimes. I just I could be wrong, but it's a guess. So 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 do you think?
0: Do you think it matter Do you think it matters? Do you think do you think it's something that? So I I, I pushed quite hard for test-driven development. I I, I recognise all that you say, but I do mm-hmm. try and push quite hard to encourage it and promote it. Do you think that's a sensible effort? I, I, I guess I guess I'm trying to I guess I'm trying to ask a leading question, and the the real question that I'm trying to get to is it's i'm fairly hard line on test driven development i think that software is almost never as high quality in its absence and mm-hmm. that's a pretty hard line to take but that means that it's important therefore to try and get people over that bump of there being one more thing to learn and 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 this separation but but, but that's
1: an effort that's worth it yeah i totally agree that it's worthwhile and whenever i you know like uh you know, it's funny you mentioned my book a little bit earlier, but since I think of my book as scare tactics for for test-driven development, <laughs> it's kind of like once you discover discovered how hard it is to test existing code, you're kind yeah. of like, well, I'm going to basically write tests from the very beginning, so I don't encounter this problem, right? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I do feel very strongly about it still. Um. I think that the the rough part is basically there's sometimes some zeal around it, which can be beneficial at times, but also can be kind of off-putting for people. The yeah. way I always kind of look at it with um, developers I'm working with is – Um, you know, give this a shot, see what it does for you. And I concentrate on their experience of pain and sort of point out, it's like, this is a way of going and avoiding that problem of kind of like, you know, the story I always tell is like early in my career, you know, some friends would come by and say, Hey, Mike, do you want to get some coffee? At like that one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon, I'd say, no, no, I'm juggling eggs because I'd torn up my coat so much. And I wasn't sure I'd be able to go and sort of get it back in working state before leaving at the end of the day. And after applying TDD, I just realized I could walk away at any moment and just press the button when I get back and see whether things are working or not. And, yeah. and that's a, a priceless feeling to be able to go and have as a developer, you know, to know that things are still working.
0: Yeah, I, 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 got, I got into the habit when, when I was doing this on a daily basis. I don't write code every, every single day anymore. But when I was writing code regularly for, for real outcomes, I got mm-hmm. into the habit of, of leaving, leaving, you know, on my local computer just a failing test. So I could come back, yes. run the test, see it fail, and I could carry on from there.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> <just>, a bookmark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Just, 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 just leave. Continue my train of thought from the previous day. Yeah, I go. It. It's, it's, uh, so, 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 I I, 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 I try hard not to be a zealot about things. I, I, I try to think carefully about, um, you know, the reasons why. Why I want to do things, and, and as you say, you need to put it in context and help people to 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 the answer rather than wag fingers at them and tell them they're naughty if they don't do it. But it, it, it is one things. of those things. Yeah, the, the, it is one of those things that, that that's that's kind you know it's that, that that's kind kind of kind of hard. You know, it's it, it's it's like you know, teaching your children to brush their teeth so that their teeth don't fall out when before they grow up. <laughs> you know,
1: yeah, <laughs> it, I think. <laughs> and the rough thing it seems also it's like in a team situation you get one person who's really excited and then they become kind of yeah. like you know they're they're proselytizing throughout the team and everybody's like oh shut up you know it's kind of like i know this is working for you but it's like whatever i don't want to hear about a tdd today right yeah so it's that thing of like sort of like um is it a british term a keener a person who's very keen on things for something or like you know i don't know anyway, might, but like,
0: might, be, might be australian i don't know <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
1: But it's kind of like sometimes people have to be a little bit subtle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah ab-
0: ab- absolutely. So, 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 one, one of the things, one of the things that, um, uh, one of the things that that, that intrigued me, and, I, and I, it's a long time since I read your book, so, so it might be that you that, that you wrote about this in your book. But one of the things that I would, one of the things that I think about in terms of. Um, uh, the difficult parts of doing test-driven development um, are what I call testing of the edge at the edges. So the, the points where you, you're performing I.O. of some kind or you, you're kind of reaching out and you know you you need to you need to come back into the system in some way. And I, you know, I wondered whether one of the problems that makes it hard applying this kind of stuff in legacy code settings is that there are so many edges very often in those sorts of systems.
1: Yeah um it's like there's no price to going and just introducing them because like yeah. hey you have an api you can use i'll just use it right here that kind of thing right yeah um so i think the interesting thing with testing is that to me it seems like it introduces a constraint which allows you to go and sort of like get some separation between the pure logic of your system and then basically the things which are io related or external world related and stuff and you know we, we've known for ages like um, alistair kilburn's notion of hexagonal architecture for instance yeah that you want to have like this core and then basically you have the periphery, which is kind of like contact with the world. But this is like a constraint that kind of helps people arrive there when they're doing TDD. Otherwise, yeah, it's, it's rough. It's kind of like you have to do a lot of mocking or extracting of logic and pointing to it in different places to make things testable in many cases, which is awful, you know.
0: Yeah. So, 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 so what, what are your kind of techniques to, to alleviate that problem?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I think it's kind of funny because you know, I wrote the book ages ago, so like this thing of synthesizing, you know, this, I, I think one thing I'm, I always look for now is like, is the thing I'm working on a glue system or is it more like a computational system in a way, right? Yeah. There's this some code I used as an exercise years ago and I still use it at times that's so kind of like a code for a mail server in Java, right? So essentially you send it mail and it goes and sends it off to a bunch of, you know, uh, recipients. And when you look at the system, everything is a call to the Java Mail API, right? And except for maybe two or three things which are computational. And I think from my point of view, you've got a choice there. Like you're either gonna go and um, you know, test the full thing end to end by really sending mail and having it send mail back to you, yeah. or you're gonna find computational bits and try to go and isolate those and get test coverage around those in order to go and do the yeah. things you need to do. So you have to kind of know which kind of a system you're in. You know, are you one which is really mainly glue code between APIs or is it really a computational thing? And if it's a computational thing, um, then I think unit testing is really, you know, a good answer in that space to go and isolate the computation mechanism and do the work that you need to do. Um, There's that. I think the other thing I come back to, I don't know whether you get to it in in your book. Um, I've got your book also. I haven't read fully at this point, but the. uh, the notion that you don't have to test everything right away, you know, essentially, it's like test as you need to change things. Yeah. And, um, you know, the way that things happen in systems, you know, it's like some areas will never touch again and other areas you're going to touch over and over again. And, yeah. you know, the latter tests and, you know, you don't have to be upset that you only have like 52% coverage in your system. It may be that way in two years also, it might be more up to 60 yeah but numbers aren't the goal, you know, it's just getting coverage for what you need to do. Yeah. You
0: know? Yeah. And 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 as you I, I, as you say, you, you know, doing that tactically in the parts of the system that matter to you at the time when you're working. You you make yeah. make the bits where you're working habitable.
1: Yeah, totally
0: habitable. I love that word for that. Yeah. 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 Another of those cro- quotes that I picked up in in, in my research on the I'm gonna throw back at you is is that um uh, object orientation, when it's done right, looks a lot like functional programming. but there, there's a uh, contentious thing to say these
1: days. it is, yeah, but I think it's um, and i I don't mean it quite literally, but really more like in its effect in a way. yeah, um, no pun intended because you know there's a side effect issue with functional programming, stuff like that. <laughs> you know it's when you when you look at like um a system that you're trying to go and get tests around and and object orientation, for instance. One of the basic maneuvers is essentially like dependency injection, right? Or yeah. you know, I think the 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 very simple way of looking at this, even if you're not using a dependency injection framework, is parameterize the constructor, just passing all the dependencies through the constructor, right? Yeah. And typically these dependencies are things that do I/O or interact with other parts of the system, stuff like that. So you can look at, you know, the entire object as being a thing which is parameterized, and basically it should be pure computation. In a yeah. sense that it goes and grabs things from the, you know, the inputs, maybe writes things to the input objects, stuff like that. But it's kind of like, it's very clear what the inputs and outputs are to that piece. And it's that aspect of functional programming that's, that I, that I see mirrored in good go low in a way. It's yeah. like that you get a degree of locality where you know what's going in and you know what's coming out because it's explicit in interfaces. And, you know, functions are that same thing to an extreme. But yeah. good OO tends to align in that direction, at least in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, 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 and, and I think that the synergy of OO design and test-driven development, test-driven development tends to push you in that direct, the direction of that kind of design as well. I, yeah. I, 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 I vaguely remember us having a conversation a long time ago about mm-hmm. um, about the the kind of surface area of the system and 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 the yeah. testability, you know that that's imposed on you by testability. One one of the criticisms that I see from time to time is, you know, um, is is that the test driven development can have a, a put impact to make your designs worse by breaking decomposing the system into lots of tiny pieces. And yeah. I remember you saying at the time and reassuring me in my, my opinion, which was actually that's just the surface area of the problem that you're seeing there that, that the test driven development yeah. kind of shines a light on or, or words mm-hmm. to that effect um yeah and yeah, yeah it's, it seems sim. this seems similar to me in, in in that light it tends to push you in the way of doing OO better as well
1: yeah no definitely definitely um it's, it's a, an interesting thing with this too because I think one of the things I've really come back to an awful lot recently I was really impressed by a talk I saw by Ian Cooper do you know him at all yeah 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 uh, like,
0: I, I I I've seen some of his talks I don't know him personally
1: yeah yeah um but it's like uh he was going and um he's talking about that that tension between basically like you're testing a whole chunk of a system which is more integration versus yeah. like every single class gets its tests and stuff like that um and it made me think that a lot of times when I'm doing TDD quite often I start with something and I write tests against yeah. it and it kind of ends up becoming a facade because I start extracting yeah. pieces out which is it's a bit different from what like steve freeman and nat price would do in growing object-oriented systems using tests yeah Um, because i don't know but I, i think i lean more in this direction now of kind of like you're growing out from a facade and in a way um but i go back and forth it's really kind of hard i think we've had a debate within the industry for quite a while about you know are you testing each piece individually and then knitting them together or are you basically growing basically testing something that you're going to grow outward mm-hmm. i know in the legacy code situation the latter tends to happen quite often you'll find a a god class and you're trying to make changes to it and you write some tests against the facade of it and then you're kind of like well gee i've got a, enough coverage now to go and extract out pieces and you do that and then you still have this kind of hierarchical structure that way but it's okay because it's understandable and you've got test coverage and you can march forward um yeah, yeah. So i was a little bit rambly, but. rambly, Um, does it play with that in a way you know yeah yeah or are you kind of like growing you know yeah i i i
0: i i think i think it it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the you know the, the, the limitations of the human mind you know you, you you don't always know the the right way forward and so you're you're exploring you you, you are you're in learning mode you're discovering new things and one of the, and and one of the ways of doing that is just jumping different levels of abstraction so you you want to sometimes you want to jump up and get that kind of you know broader picture of yeah. how do these pieces hang together oh yeah well, now i see it and now i'm going to go down and i'm going to look at this detail i'm going to test this little piece
1: mm-hmm. yeah definitely there's, I think like another related thought around that is um, the thing about modularity an awful lot over the years. And, you know, when we get back to that thing about testing pain and it pointing to design problems, yeah, it made me think back to the thing that we've always had about like, how do we name the testing that we do? And it's like, it seemed like people would say, hey, unit test isn't really a good name for this yeah and let's call them programmer tests or let's call them micro tests or yeah all these other things and you know i i f- felt like it might be an interesting thing to flip around and say well we could call them unit tests and then people would say what's the unit and i'd say well, it's the thing that you can test easy in a yeah. way it's like if if you have a chunk that's this big and you can test it easy because it has minimal um coupling to other pieces then that's yes. the unit that tested doesn't matter if it's like three or four classes working together but it ends up being this cohesive chunk that you can actually work with if it gets to be 10 or 15 classes and you can't effectively test it because you know like the distance between your inputs and outputs and what's really going on is so far that it's not understandable probably not a good unit so it I think that thing of going and help helping having tests basically help us see where the modularity currently exists in the system and then how we can actually sort of fiddle with it to go and make it better it's like uh
0: yeah improve on it I, I, and one of the driving principles for that that, that I use often and yeah. I know you talk about as well I think maybe we use different terminology but separation of concerns you know yeah just striving to make sure that each part of the code is doing one thing and again you know that that idea of um uh, the testability of the system helps us to see those opportunities I I I I, I I think that was an aspect of the way that I applied and thought about design anyway. But I worked for a few yeah. years alongside Martin Thompson, you who know, I think I think mm-hmm. you know as well. Yeah, yeah. He's a good good friend of mine. And mm-hmm. Martin's a great programmer, but he has a laser focus on separation of concerns. Immediately he spots mm-hmm. the slightest hint that any piece of code is doing more than one thing he's ripping it apart and he's just trying to figure out how to get that you know that that thing out and somewhere else and his code his code is just really nice to to work on as a result because each piece you can just you can see exactly what it's doing and you know it's it's all there in front of you and Mm -hmm. it's clear and it's testable um but it's small, and, and it talks. You know, it may talk to to another piece somewhere, and that's clear and easy to understand. But then you've got to have that ability to kind of synthesize the picture a little bit. Which I can kind of see the criticism of the surface area, but that 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 it does make each piece easy to work on, and it does make
1: each each one easy to understand. And yeah, you know, and and it, what's wild is like when you have like really extreme separation concerns like that, it's almost like every object becomes a lever in a way. Yes, yeah. like you want to teach how this operates tweak this one lever and it's really obvious that this is the lever because that's the place where it resides and it's doing nothing else right yeah and i think that's you know a powerful thing there, there was a i had a really weird experience early on like i remember trying to learn and i looked at something called the hot draw framework that was kind of like I believe it was ken hour and Kent Beck working on this and I think Ralph Johnson was involved in one of the early design patterns, guys. Mm-hmm. I remember looking at this code, I had nobody to explain it to me. And it was like all these little objects and kind of like, how does this all fit together? I tried making CRC cards to go and look at how this, all this stuff was. And then I remember reading someplace, I forget where it was, it's kind of like when you, when you factor at a very fine grain in a system, it might be a little bit harder to find where you need to make the change. But once you make, once you find that place, it's easy. Yeah. So you're going, you're trading off, there's a little bit of extra discovery cost sometimes, yeah, for where something resides. But then it's kind of like the modularity gives you the affordance to be able to go and really tweak things yeah. the way you want. So and it's, it's kind of interesting to write, but it's tough for developers quite often because they're kind of like, I can't understand everything. It's all it's all over yeah. the place. And yeah. you know, it's part of the learning curve. I think you know. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I, and I think that then comes into one of those 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 unpopular topics, you know, architecture, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the architect. I, I, I've, I've started using a silly phrase to talk about architecture, my view of architecture, but, but I, I think of architecture rather like a tourist map of a system that, that it kind of gives you a vague layout. It's not it's not a precise map. It's, it's yeah. you're not going to be able to measure distances on it, but you're able to you're able to find your way around and you're able to to navigate to certain parts of the system and then you can see what it's doing. And, and uh, I, I think it, it, it kind of works for me on, the, on on the way that I tend to use architecture as, as sort of just a rough guide. So we can all agree, yeah, it, it, this change lives over there, and then you zoom in on the detail, and you and the code tells you the rest.
1: Yeah, no, I, I love it, and it's it's interesting. That's a great segue into something I've been kind of like working on a little bit recently. There's um, um I had an idea years ago, uh, something I called quality views, and the idea behind this was to go and have some way to make it easier for business people and developers to go and communicate about the um, the state of the system. And yeah. in a nutshell, this is exactly what it is. It's just that you, um, for every major component in the system, you kind of give it a bit of a health grade. Like you can mm-hmm. use colors, like, you know, dark brown versus like light yellow or something like that. And then when people are asking for features, you can go and say, oh, cool, we can do this. And it looks like that's all resides, that feature can be implemented in this particular component and that's got pretty healthy code. Yeah, But if it spans a couple of different components and one's like kind of poor, you can explain at least why it's difficult to go naturally add this feature now and then you know that becomes like a bit of a a prop for a conversation with business and you know the one guy tried this out at Tesla Colin Brecht and he said it's really great because without talking about technical debt at all you get into this situation where basically people are saying like well gee can you do something about this area of code here because you know every time we ask for a feature it's like this is still dark red you know it's kind of like can you work on this because we know that's holding us back and i think that kind of thing of having transparency between the people that want stuff and then the team that's actually you know doing them is like an interesting thing but the reason i mentioned that is that i've been playing around with the idea recently to sort of like say let's take a system and sort of figure out what are like the five to ten key responsibilities of it and then use those as like the major areas for things and say Mm -hmm. like uh, You know, you and I were working on like say a payroll system or something like that. We can figure out what the main areas of responsibility are. And then we can ask questions like, okay, here's a key responsibility. It's spread across five different locations. Do we like that or not, right? Or like, here's one of those locations that this responsibility resides. Are there other responsibilities there in that location? And if there are, then it's kind of like, we at least have some, some kind of like imposed view of the system, which might help us might give us guidance for how we actually continue it. How do we try to keep things within the boundaries when we're evolving yeah. this in a way? So I've been playing around with this is an idea and it's been fun, you know. But cool. It's it's it sounds interesting. I've
0: got I've got I've got a few questions about that. So so the yeah. the, the, the first the first part, so so the the grading of the di- the difficulty, the kind of yeah. subjective technical debt picture. Um mm-hmm. where does that come from? Is is that based on piece of people's opinion of the code or is it some technical analysis of the code or something
1: um see everybody wants to do the technical analysis and use the tools and stuff like that and that can be great Uh um the thing is i get a little bit scared when people do that because then you start having conversations of like well sonar cube told me this so this is the truth and you know that kind of thing i think at the end of the day we are paid for our professional judgment yeah about what the quality of the system happens to be and we all have an intuitive sense about what's difficult to change and what's easy to change yeah and so we can use tooling to inform our opinion but we have to own our opinion about okay. that sort of thing that's why i like to keep it subjective and say let's use color gradations or like a scale of one to ten or something you so know, i how, can,
0: how, how, how do you keep that up to date
1: well that's the interesting thing i think that's an, uh, that's um it falls back into the one more thing problem right yeah um so yeah i think that's something you can kind of you know, I, th- I think if it's if it's something that's the basis of the conversation with the business, then like every week or whenever it is that you're having conversations, you just refer back to it and that's the way of dealing with it. Um, But I think the thing I'm looking at now is like how to load this up even more. For instance, if we can see the system as basically like five to 10 responsibilities, um, you know, we might go and say, OK, let's have rules of engagement for these different areas, era- these different responsibilities, like whenever I'm dealing with the payments aspect, um, I know that I have three major refactorings that are kind of like in flight. Yeah. So whatever changes you make should be aligned with those refactorings. You should either make progress on the refactoring yeah. or at least not do anything which is gonna go and sort of like counter, you know, the direction we wanna take the code over time. Um, so I think I'm calling them responsibility indices. It's kind of like an index into the system based yeah. on responsibilities. and playing around with the idea with a couple of teams and um you know i, I don't know I, I think it's i think it's a viewpoint that people could use the big the hard thing is how do you basically sort of you know make it something people want to keep up to date you know yeah yeah you know, yeah organize yeah. their work, work i
0: i, I it, it's it's not quite the same thing i i don't think but but i worked on a team um a few years ago and we kept we we kind of kept an informal an informal map of technical debt mm-hmm. the, the intent of which was if you go into this bit of code this is a problem that would that we could do with fixing so you know if you need to go and do a story in this in this piece of code fix this problem while you're doing it yeah <laughs> kind of thing uh, yeah. which is which is kind of vaguely related i i,
1: I think no definitely definitely is and i i think the the other thing that added to this is i keep coming back to this old quote from kent beck that i think it's probably something he might have said Offhand at a conference someplace, and then somebody wrote it down. It's like, I think he said in the early days of object orientation, if you, you can't explain your system using three or four objects or four or five objects, you don't have a system. You don't have an architecture in a way. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think that kind of ties back to that seven plus or minus two thing we were talking about with cognition. Yeah. It's kind of like just for ergonomics or habitability, as you as you say, to be able to go and sort of say, at this scale, we can see the system as yes, five to ten things. It's so valuable that even if you don't have it, it's probably valuable to impose a vision of those things and gra- gradually move the system in, in alignment with that. Yeah, I, 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 that,
0: that, that's making me think a little bit about Simon Brown's stuff as well, about the, the different levels of resolution of abstraction that you look at art, software architecture. Oh,
1: um, I wasn't aware of that, so Simon Brand, Simon Brown, yeah. Simon so Brown, yeah, so okay, he's, yeah. he's
0: got he's got he's got a thing called the C four architecture and a diagram. Okay, technique right. At, it at different yeah,
1: resolution. I forgot about the resolution aspect of that. Yeah,
0: yeah, cool. yeah. Cool. So the the second part that you were talking about, while you were describing it, it was making me think that sounds that sounds like identifying and mapping bounded contexts after the fact. Yeah, is is that is that a reasonable kind of? It, it is, except that the
1: thing the I'm playing with is. Um that these things might not be co-located in a way right yeah. depends upon the state of the system that like if, if the system's gotten in a really crufty state you might say okay well here's payments but payments are scattered across five places yeah yeah so it's so, kind so, of so, like-
0: so, so, so the mapping to the solution might be poor but that's but so you're talking about the boundary context but the mapping to the solution might be poor
1: Right, right. So I think, and this is the weird, th- I, I think developers, I think people in general quite often have this problem of giving credence to a view of something that's not like really right in front of them in a way, yeah. right? So it's like when you look at the physical architecture, it's like, that's the truth, right? I can I can go here and here and here and I know kind of where things are and stuff like that. But if you're kind of like creating, if you have a responsibility view of the system and then you say, well, okay, you know this is the responsibility view is that we have these five or ten things that are not really it's not really aligned with the physical structure that we have right now, but we can move things more in alignment. Um, I think to the degree that we can consider that responsibility true view of the system the ideal in a way or the truth that we're striving for, we might be able to go and push the needle on some things of that again, so- again
0: yeah, yeah, the, 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 again, the idea that that's triggering in my mind and i think it, i think it's more than just both using the same word but but crc thinking you're just just thinking mm-hmm. about class responsibilities, collaborators. You know, you can and again, you can kind of do that at different resolutions of detail. You can think about yeah. the big picture things and the responsibilities of this this subsystem of the system and this sub subsystem over here, and then you can zoom in and look at you know more detailed picture. Yeah, and so definitely, and
1: I think I'm I'm not thinking about the collaborator aspect as much, and I think sure. most of it is. You know, I always I feel like I've got to preface where I'm coming from with this, and it's like years and years of legacy code, right? So yeah. it's kind of like I keep thinking that anything which helps us kind of like stop the bleeding in a sense. It's kind of like we have responsibilities yeah. to speak in an odd way. At least can we move towards coalescing them? And it's like, sure, they have their collaborators and that's a valid view of the system. But, um, you know, it's like some way of going and trying to get back on track with cohesion.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: And and, and again, you know, this, this this kind of gets into the. um um one of the ideas that I, I think we've been alluding to throughout this this conversation so far, but but the idea of kind of cognitive load, the, the, yeah. the, the you know the, the degree to which we can manage that complexity, whatever it might be, whether it's architectural or code level or you know, leg, you know legacy code um, balls of mud or whatever else, how do we cope with you know being able to deal with that? Because because just saying be smarter and hold more stuff in your head isn't good enough.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I, I think it's it's really a rough thing. I I every once in a while I just sort of marvel at how much the industry has changed since I first got in it. Right. Which for me was like in the 90s, very, very early 90s. Um, and, you know, it's you know, back then I was like hired out of school to design a programming language and write a compiler. And I signed a cubicle and did it myself Yeah. with like the guy who hired me basically as like a mentor to go and ask questions of periodically. Right. And so that thing of like working in a completely solo environment. You know on a desktop you know no virtualization nothing yeah and being fully responsible for a problem and then now everything is the teamwork and stuff like that and then we're in a world where basically most software is online 24 hours a day so we have to do ops support and all these other things it's um yeah i i think that latter piece by itself just essentially the thing of going and having to do pager duty and all these other things it's like the the amount of load that we put on ourselves you know is uh quite tremendous um yeah so i don't know I, I go back to two things i think microservices have helped quite a bit because you can at least you have a bit of an enforced boundary you know of something that you're paying attention to that's at a bit of a higher level than classes and stuff like mm-hmm. that um but i also you know i think that we lose a bit too because quite often people are doing pretty much ticket-based development and it's, yeah. it's like it's going to a code i don't understand very well make some changes then go on to the next ticket yeah. and i think to the degree that we're doing that sort of thing where you know we're we're just we're basically sort of like shooting ourselves in the foot with regard to going actually building any kind of like a larger consistent view of the system and maintaining it yes uh so it's it's rough i don't know what the answer is with that but i just i know that that really seems to be the background problem that we all should be addressing i guess as we think about yeah to make yeah. It
0: better. yeah and uh i i i, I think I, I, th- I think I think I think that at the heart of the problem. Kind of, kind of then and now, you know, kind of you know the cause of legacy systems, but also the problem of building distributed microservice systems and all that. You know, <laughs> at its heart, at you know, kind of computer science level, information science level, maybe even is 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 kind of the idea of coupling. It's nearly all to do with the degree to which parts of the system are related to one another, and parts of the organisation are related to not to one another, or yeah. not, and the the problems that that causes. You know, if you have if you have 500 small teams, um, but they now need to coordinate all of their work on it, you know, uh, to, to, to release things, it might as well be one big dysfunctional team as 500 small dysfunctional teams. Fair enough. So, you know, you, you, you need to break, you need to think about the coupling in the organization and the software that we, we deliver to manage, to, to be able to manage that cognitive load, to be able to compartmentalize the systems in in useful ways so that we can you know keep an eye on that complexity and not let it explode out and 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 compromise what we're doing i see i i agree with you about microservices although i'm a critic of them as well because one of the patterns that i see so regularly is teams that claim to be doing microservice but they still have to Assemble everything together and test everything at the same version before they can release them. And you've just thrown all of the value out, you know, so so the the idea of architectural decoupling using hexagonal architecture ports and adapters Mm -hmm. and, you know, version APIs between services, all of those kinds of techniques, just to allow you to, to maintain my freedom to change my service without needing to test it with yours before I release it seems yeah. crucial crucial to me to, to be able to do no it definitely things.
1: it definitely is and it, it's it's a weird thing with this too it's like when um I'm gonna go way abstract for a second if you don't mind but like we talk about platforms these days right yeah. And it's kind of like um I think that sometimes the base architectural things that we do and even the process things that we do become a platform for us and they either yes. facilitate ease of work and experimentation or they don't right yeah so it's kind of like to the degree that um you know, if you're able to go and sort of like, uh, if you have to test everything together, it's kind of like there's other trouble, right? Yeah. And you're really, you should be able to go and deploy things separately and you should deploy things separately so you can sort of see when things kind of fall out of whack. You know, it's like, well, things like that enable so much, but they really are like um, a development platform at the process level that allows you to do that stuff well. Yeah. You know. It's a nuance that gets missed. I totally agree. So, yeah yeah. Have,
0: have you have you come across the um the team topologies book by Matt Skelton? Oh yeah, totally. I love, I love it. it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Would... Fan, fantastic book, and I I think that's one of those things that gives a step forward of starting to think about you know, teams as a design tool, to, yeah. to facilitate some of these behaviors.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I think um, yeah, it's funny. Like you just the notion of a streamlined team and having a name for that sort of thing, and that's yeah, it's you know. The thing I want to say is like you know getting to be like a cranky old man now. It's kind of like the thing <laughs> I keep coming back to. You know, it's at <laughs> a certain point in your life, you just have to go you know run with it, right? <laughs> but uh, you know the the thing I keep coming back to is kind of like you know how how could the world be different so that we could make software development easier, right? Yeah, we're doing all the things we can to basically deal with a complicated world, but can we make the world different? You know, it's 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 a weird flip of things just going to understand things in a way um but the thing I keep coming down to is that it feels like scale is the enemy sometimes right mm-hmm. the desire to go and scale systems up leads us to go and putting in all sorts of you know process architectural um you know scaffolding to go and basically allow the work to go and happen yeah. And we know in our hearts that the work is going to slow down because there's more coupling and then there's more coordination costs across all the people and all the teams and stuff like that yeah. and you feel like going to the product people and going and saying well that set of features you just asked for that's another product that's not the same product anymore can we just have another product which basically goes and stands on its own and maybe it's a bit smaller and then you'll get more yeah. rapidity of development and it'll be a more niche thing but this is all coming against like economies of scale and things like that, that yeah it's easier to take a big thing and make it bigger than to go and make more small things yeah you know at product level and stuff and you know so it, it's a weird thing i i wish that it were easier to have those conversations and sort of find the maybe 10% of cases where, you know, making something completely new is a better tack than going and enhancing something that already exists, because I think yeah. that that's an under underexplored path for many architectures, you know, for many products in a way. Yeah,
0: so. it, it, it is. I, I, it is complicated, though. I want to. I. I, one of the, I, I I think this is one of the things that I saw in one of your videos when I was kind of reminding myself of your work for, for, for talking to you about
1: yeah.
0: it today. But but um, one of the things that I think that you said that I, I liked was that was that you know, something that I believe profoundly. One of the reasons why I like doing software development is because it's hard. I, I like it because it's. I like that it's difficult. I'm okay with that. I, I enjoy the challenge i you know i I feel proud when I can come up with a nice solution to a problem mm-hmm. that's genuinely difficult and yeah. I, so I don't i don't I don't really mind that, but I think it is extremely difficult and and, and I think it's even difficult when we're doing si- simple su- systems sometimes we, we we're often just tiny steps away from some profoundly deep and hard to resolve problems. And if we mm-hmm. make the so it's very it's it, it's a domain that's very easy to take missteps in I think software development yeah yeah and I I think one starting point is to to recognize that and to just pre- proceed more cautiously more incrementally with, with with a little bit more defensive thinking in terms of design and implementation and so on and and some of the stuff we've been talking about is is my yeah. version of that compartmentalizing things and so on so I can worry about it in smaller pieces and so on but but. But the, the, there are there are those different kinds of of systems. So so I I I dealt with the clients who I who I won't name, but they build build big complicated scientific instruments, and one of the mm-hmm. things that they uh, they were struggling for a long time, but you know, it's, it's a complicated problem. That they are genuinely complex devices. These devices that they're building, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and and they're building the whole software stack. And they were struggling with that and keeping, it, you know, being able to make progress quickly enough. One of the one of the ideas that they had, it wasn't my idea, but one of the ideas that they that that they had at some point was to do exactly what you just said. And they said, why don't we just start writing some micro apps and just releasing those? And you know, we you know we got this good idea, good simple idea. We'll just implement yeah. that as a standalone thing instead of it being part of this massive stack yeah. of you know suite of software, and we'll just mm. do that. And it can get get the data it needs out the machine, crunch the numbers, and present this this little little tiny part of the answer to a question. Mm. And that kind of liberated them to try lots of other things, riff fast on ideas, and try ideas. The counter to that is that we're also you know in, in, industry wide we're also building. You know, we're, we're building self-driving cars and space rockets that are going to go to Mars and all of those sorts of things. That those yeah. are software devices these these days to a large extent, yeah. and you've got to solve problems on those scales as well. So, so one of the things it seems to me, if we if we're going to think about engineering, is to think about, you know, engineering at different scales. It's not going to be exactly the same everywhere. There might be some principles that are shared. At whatever mm-hmm. scale you're doing it, and I think that there are, but yeah. it's it's not going to be the same. And it and one of the one of the anti patterns that I see is the other way around as well, which is tiny teams that are doing some relatively simple thing, adopting mm-hmm. the technologies and the disciplines of you know, Google or Amazon. You're, why you're not Google? Yeah. You know yeah. what, what you know. Nearly every team that I see these days starts with Kubernetes. Does every mm-hmm. team need Kubernetes? Is is that the best starting place for for solving the problem that's in front of you, or is that just slowing you down? I don't know. Yeah. So, but no, I totally agree. It is complex. Like,
1: yeah, definitely. And it's and, and it, yeah, I think the skill makes a difference. All the context I mean, it makes a difference for all these different things. And I think there's this other force as well, which is kind of like you know what can people expect when you're when you hire them, right? It's kind of like you know I think some technologies become pervasive just because yeah you know it's kind of like well if i'm not using this technology that's the thing i can't put on my resume you know sad to, you know realize that some people think that way yeah um, but it's like there's a lingua franca i guess that developers start to go and sort of like gravitate towards and then basically companies realize that the hiring pool is there yeah. in a way as well you know so i don't know it's it's yeah there's so many forces around this it's really fascinating you know i
0: i, agree. I, I, I think that's kind of in some ways, it's one of the advantages. I started a little bit before you, but not very long before you. I, yeah. I started in the, my professional career in the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. But I think that one of the things, one of the advantages, perhaps, that we had was that the the landscape was simpler. That you know, that there was there were fewer technical choices, there were fewer frameworks to pick up on. you know, and so one, you 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 either had to do more yourself. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to be using frameworks that nearly everybody's familiar with anyway, because everybody uses it, you know, or mm-hmm. yeah. technologies. So, and that that's that's different. So, so I'm I'm a little bit wary about about the explosion of um, third-party software that people rely on, and I'm I'm not. I kind of agree to to a significant to to a, to some degree that you don't want to buy you don't want to build everything yourself. I don't I don't want to write my own operating system or programming language <laughs> from, from scratch other than, find, as, yeah. <laughs> other than exercising curiosity anymore. Mm-hmm. But um and you know things like you know the cloud, you know, raising the bar raising the level of abstraction on on, on infrastructure management and operational considerations all that is 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 a good thing. But then but then again, you know. Well, I don't really want to be linking a zero pad extension to my language where I can write the function in yeah, thirty yeah. seconds. You know,
1: it's you know, it's, it's really rough. And I guess you know, it's you know, there's so many things that really kind of fall down to economics, at least in my opinion, right? It's kind of like you are adding incremental value on top of an enormous pile of value, right? Yeah. And it's um, you know, it's, it's fun, as often as we talk about technical debt, I think that one thing that we need to appreciate as well is just. That maybe the problem is that software is too valuable, right? We're scared to throw it away, yeah, because the cost of going and rebuilding things and stuff like that is just too large. So we just kind of end up accreting more and more and more and more stuff. Yeah. And um you know, it, it does represent value, but it's also, you know, I, I I like people to be happy at work, and I like to basically have you know work environments which include the code itself, yes, where people feel comfortable and able to you know to do the work and and all these kind of things but you know the the economics kind of drives away from that sort of thing and i think it's something we have to be kind of vigilant about yes because we have to we have to shore things up to basically keep that space for ourselves it seems
0: yeah and, and there's this there's, there's there's a commonly a kind of naive reaction to that in that you know we we we're driven by that economics we we sometimes make back the wrong choices as well as making the right choices it's yeah it's uh it, the, the, the overly simplistic view of you know what that means that i i often think about that when it comes to kind of the buy buy versus build argument at at lmax when we built our exchange we use we actually use very little third-party software nearly everything nearly everything that we wrote uh, we wrote ourselves from scratch and i'm not necessarily suggesting that that's what you must do but it worked quite well for us it put us in control and and that was one of the most efficient teams that I've worked on. <laughs> in, in, yeah, yeah. But, you know,
1: it's an interesting thing because I think with Elmax, you know, to the degree that I understand, I mean, it's kind of it's system software in a way, right? And it's kind of like it's, it feels like it's a very strong vertical in a way, right? The Elmax architecture. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair characterization? I, I,
0: I, I, I think it is to a degree. Uh, yeah. I, 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 th- I, I think it's. It's certainly applying system software style thinking yeah. to solving the problem. And partly that's because of the, the problem domain had some fairly extravagant demands in terms of performance. Uh, and so that drove us to apply some of the, you know, you're really looking at trying to, you know, apply that kind of yeah. thinking to, to solving the problem.
1: Because well, it, I, I think some of the
0: techniques, I, I do think, I do believe that some of the techniques that we that we used there, are more broadly applicable than just, you know, low-latency finance systems. there
1: yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, I I guess the thing I'm trying to, you know, so I think people typically have like the systems versus application software split, but I think maybe yeah. another way of characterizing it is really kind of like um, systems where the complexity is physics-bound versus people-bound, yeah. in a way. It's kind of like, are you dealing with, you know, like uh, friction, speed, latency, all these other things, yeah. or basically, person who wants to basically change tax law and basically goes and now has to force like a different computation upon, you know, all the clients you have in your organization. Or yeah. the person who wants us, you know, a different color for, you know, the 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 GUI and stuff like that. Yeah. Um and it's it's kind of like in those two spaces. I, you know, I I think, you know, it can be, even though the problems can be hard in the systems realm or the the physics bound realm, it's kind of like they are problems that kind of like be a little bit more static than just they're less capricious i guess than in the application space where like well we need this other this other feature for this particular thing just because we think there's a market there and you know so i think there there's a there's a difference there and i i i i i I feel envious quite often of the the physics bound realms in a way just because they they seem a little bit more solid i don't know you know but yeah. yeah
0: that that may that may be that may be true i i
1: i i I think it's oversimplification i think i
0: think it's i think it's i think it's a bit of an oversimplification but uh, but i i I can i can certainly agree with you that that there's 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 parts of that that are true and and certainly the stuff that we talked about because so, so we were doing some of both of those things. So we were, yeah, we were, yeah. we were using the kind of the systems style programming to make some of doing the other things easier. Yeah, uh, I think, uh, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's the case. In 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 reality, the core of our system were very rich domain models that modeled sometimes quite complicated human business processes and
1: and, and so okay because yeah, all i know and is that omac is reading the papers which describe the circular yeah yeah, yeah.
0: It, it, that's because yeah. that's mostly what we talked about is that is, is yeah. the <laughs> kind of low, lower level plumbing <laughs> stuff but but I, but i do i do i do concede that you know i i think there's part of that truth but but i am i, I am a believer you know, i i am a believer that software you know computers and software are deterministic systems you know whatever they are doing it so so the inputs may change But Mm -hmm. for the same set of inputs, you're always gonna get the same set of outputs. The degree to which that's not true, I think is more in our control than we think. The degree to which that's not true is when concurrency happens and we allow concurrency to happen. Um, And so if you control concurrency appropriately, Mm -hmm. I think you can make what I've just said more true and get greater control and you end up with more testable software,
1: more deterministic software, more predictable. Before you mentioned concurrency, I started thinking it's like, oh, we're kind of zooming back to the thing of objects and you know, good object orientation looks functional yeah you have control inputs and outputs. But it's like, yeah, the determinism story—that's side effects, you know, due to concurrency. Yeah, and I guess a whole other raft of side effects that are possible with it as well. But you know, that's the thing we want to—we want to basically, we, okay, yeah. But, so if software has to be deterministic. Well we we try to impose determinacy where we can to help us understand things.
0: What, what, one of the one of the things that we, we did at Lmax was that we made the core of our system single threaded. So so each each little bubble of domain logic in our system, every bubble of domain logic in our system was deterministic. So you know, given the inputs, we get exactly the same input, and we have to. We even we even ended up rewriting things like hash maps so that the hashing order was predictable, so that we get the same <laughs> hashing order for the same the same input yeah. and stuff like that. Um, to, so, to, 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 to up the determinism and improve the performance. But but so so I think that I think there are ideas like that that you can apply that are more generally applicable and can make our systems stronger and better as a result when we apply that kind of thinking um but it's it's a it's a bit it's still a bit bleeding edge and and it's not how what most systems look like i, I absolutely concede uh,
1: yeah. but
0: i i i think that my own view um having worked with some people who were genuine martin thompson being one genuinely world world class experts at concurrent systems you know Mm -hmm. their view is don't do concurrency unless you have to (laughs) always and so so my my view being less good than them is that i'm I'm always i'm always very keen to try and absolutely minimize the degree to which i'm relying on concurrency and i'm not going to get that let that leak into any bit of code that i care about how it works I'm, I'm, going yeah, to, I'm, no. going to, I'm going to work in ways that allow me to do it efficiently, but mm-hmm. um, manage it cautiously.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's I. That's one thing. I, I, The thing you just mentioned brought up something I think about every once in a while. It's like how often constraints are so helpful to us. Yes. Uh, and particularly that kind of thing. And so, if you have a really hard problem, then you, if you're Martin Thompson, you know, or you, you might arrive at this thing that's like, okay, concurrency is the problem. If we just basically draw a hard line there, then you end up designing in different ways. And it's utterly fascinating how that happens. Yeah. Um, I had. But, early- but,
0: but again, again, getting just just yeah. getting to that that comes from that kind. In a way, it's going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, talking about test-driven mm-hmm. development. So, so the way that we got to that problem was that we were yeah. trying stuff out. We came up yeah. with an architecture that was based on trying to. Um, uh, de- we we built something called a staged event driven architecture, where we, you predict what thread you, you try and allocate a given instance, a given account or a user's, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. details or whatever to a single thread. And every time you process that one piece of information, you process it on the same thread. And yeah. we, we built this, they're supposed to be very fast, you know, low, low contention and therefore very fast, all this good stuff. We built one of those, we built an exchange based on those principles, we measured the performance and it sucked. It was terrible. And we measured it, we started profiling it and looking at it all the way down. And we found out that we we're spending more time figuring out where to do work than we were actually doing the work. So at which point we threw all of that away and said, we'll do all the work on a single thread. And yeah. you know, but we came to it through that kind of incremental, step by step, route design. We didn't—that didn't spring fully formed from any genius's mind. It was oh, hard work. Yeah.
1: No, <laughs> no, fair enough, fair enough. And I think that's the interesting thing is like it's—it's it's kind of like you—you're forced into a, an unfamiliar situation. Like a profile tells you, "Okay, hey, there's a problem," yeah. but there's still a problem. And then you're kind of like, "Okay, well, here's a different thing. Let's try it out." And then. It seems like there's a bit of courage in just going with it and going and saying there yeah. might be a general principle here, and if we kind of like adopt this as the base, we'll be able to go and move even further in the direction we want to go. And yeah, you know, I think that's that's yeah that's a that's an interesting dynamic. But a lot, I think there are many people that either they don't connect that the solution that you've arrived at is something that can be expanded out into a bigger space, or maybe they don't have the will to do it or something. You know, I think. Yeah. You know, and so I think that's where yeah, it seems like a lot of innovation happens that way.
0: Yeah, and, and 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 that that gets back to the stuff that I was saying before is that you know I I think I think as is deeply a discipline of
1: learning and exploration. Yeah, I, I always come back to curiosity, you know, because it's just yeah. like if you yeah, if yeah. you really are kind of like you want to figure things out. I you know this this is called the engineering room, but I have a I have like an admission to make. You know, I enjoy building things, but I'm also kind of like, I think temperamentally, I'm way more of a scientist than an engineer. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, if I understand something that I didn't understand this morning, it's like I, I call that day a success, regardless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's fun. Uh, I, I, so,
0: so, uh, uh, it, this is obviously the, the title of this is obviously related vaguely to the title of my book, but, but I've, I've got this thing for engineering at the moment. But, but like you, actually, that my, my, my interest in engineering starts from science really so, so i i i i i can yeah. understand it's it not perfectly true it's yeah. not perfectly true but i i t- do tend to think of engineering at least software engineering and the practical you know the kind of engineering that that we're talking about as being
1: you know the practical arm of scientific style rationalism <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough yeah. fair enough uh yeah, no, it's but it is worth going and sort of trying to find the underlying stuff. You know, that's that's a thing that I really kind of you know feel. I, I know it for myself it's kind of helped quite a bit. Um yeah, yeah. It's funny that the whole constraint thing, I had this early experience that was like an imposed constraint on me that led to an insight I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And I can I guess repeat it very quickly, but it was like um working at a biomedical company, we had to go and write software that would be embedded in instruments out mm-hmm. in the field and you couldn't update it anytime soon. We wanted to go and have these three, like several chunks of code that'd be completely independent of each other, but use a common library. Yeah. And I was tasked with writing the library that would be used for this. And so my boss at the time, the guy who hired me he basically said, you know, it's just like, don't have any global static, uh, global, you know, mutable data. And it's like, yeah. okay. So look for all the different opportunities for that sort of thing and made it sure that everything that was global was constant and immutable. And it was really an interesting thing to go notice that I had to pass things, you know, down through the system, you know, that things that could have been global were no longer global. They had to basically just be passed down a tree of objects in order to go do things. And I realized that that was changing the way that I was designing. And I thought, you know, we're looking at this as being a problem. It's like, oh, damn, I'm passing things. But then it forced you to really think about where things are being used. Yes. And you actually end up with a different architecture because... It's a pain to go and pass something. So you only pass in the areas that you need. And then you get some real separation of concerns because yes. this area here uses, I mean, this was even down to the level of memory. So basically, we were passing a memory object to every place that needed to allocate memory and discovered there's only a few places, you know, versus what's typical in systems design where you have access to new every place you go. Yeah. If, if you choose to go and actually allow your architecture to reflect these things, you get better separation of concerns. At least different separation of concerns, and that was really like an interesting insight, you know, for me at least to to see that you know the, the typical thing that people will say against global is kind of like okay, it's going to cause trouble, it's going to be you'll have side effects across the system. That's kind of like you actually erase design information when you yes. use global times. Yes. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, fun stuff to kind of realize this just by having constraint, you know, and yeah, but, yeah.
0: the data version of GoTo.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I think it's like but, wormholes in space
0: time, or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but that, that that again that that feels feels like it kind of closes the loop on the conversation into that the idea of 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 constraints. You know, when we started off talking about test driven development, that's one of the things that we're doing. Really, we're setting up a series of constraints yes. on our code that we that we plan to abide to, and and there's kind of some some meta level constraints that you know you know what makes good tests. And then mm-hmm. there's the specific constraints that we embody in our tests. I, I, I have a, a, a penchant for, for behaviour-driven development thinking and mm-hmm. terminology somewhat because I think it helps a little bit with some of this. Mm-hmm. But, but the idea of these things being genuinely specifications that constrain mm-hmm. the solutions that we're going to do to fulfil some desirable behavioural outcome that we identify, even at the fine-grained level, I think is yeah. kind of a, quite a, a nice way of thinking about these things.
1: Yeah, definitely. One little story I like to tell sometimes, which I think is really kind of helpful for people, it's like they're they're often like, one right test for this existing system. And it's kind of like, it's like, then you discover it's like, well, you can instantiate this object and you instantiate another object passes pass as like an argument. And you need to have this other global object available to you. And you end up going through and doing like 15, 20 different things to set things up just to go instantiate the object you care about. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's something we've all experienced. And I sort of, you know, I tell the story of like, Imagine you go to the rainforest someplace in South America and you see this brilliant blue frog and you want to go and take it back home with you to England or to North America here. And you take it, you have this little terrarium and it dies three days later. Why did that happen? It's like, well, basically that frog evolved in an environment where it had a certain temperature, humidity, daylight hours, particular food sources. And you didn't know about those dependencies when you moved the frog, right? Yeah. Much the same way, I think, when we add code to existing systems, we're using what's there available to us in place yeah and we never think about those things because they're so readily available yeah. and tdp it's like if you build something new inside its own test harness you know you're confronting every single thing that you depend upon something you have to supply at that point yes and the work of doing that leads you to basically think about minimizing dependency it makes you aware of what dependencies you're introducing in the new thing that you're writing and um i think that thing of kind of like building things in a hermetically sealed container yeah. in a way in tdd it's like a it, it's a it's a great frame for getting people to understand that particular thing so i love to repeat that story thanks for indulging me <laughs> <laughs> no 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 it's, it's, a, it's a great story I I, yeah. I I really like the
0: analogy i might I might steal that one from you <laughs> feel, feel free Just it, yeah. i i i think we're coming to the end of our time are, are there any things that you'd like to add to kind of wrap up our conversation or to or to throw in uh, you know some grenades that we that, that, that we have that, that we that we should tackle
1: um yeah no no particular grenades I, I think one thing I've been working on a lot recently is a little bit beyond software in a way which is really trying to go and sort of articulate different structuring principles that happen in systems and mm-hmm. I'm always fascinated by when you discover something that works in software but it works in a social system also yeah and things like those lines and so you know it's kind of funny leading up to this talk it's like i definitely i work in software development i've been dealing with those things by has been in this other space of understanding the dynamics of you know, have technical systems social systems and you know and all these other physical systems tend to kind of you know what are ways of seeing these things that help us when we're trying to go and change them yeah um, so i hope to write more about that later and you know and uh you know it would be just follow me on twitter anybody who wants to and uh, talk about that sort of thing periodically if you're interested in it we'll put
0: put some we'll put some we'll put some links if you've not come across um um michael's work before um i i hope i hope that hearing hearing him talk today has given you a flavor of what a thoughtful person he is about some of these things and and i think a deep thinker about Some of these ideas, Uh, Michael. It's been a it's been a pleasure as as ever to talk to you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's been a lot of fun. Thank
1: you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely
0: great. Um, If you've enjoyed the if you've enjoyed the episode today, hit subscribe. Hit like. Uh, We'll put details, links to some of the information in the description below that that we've alluded to during our conversation, and Michael's Twitter handle uh, at least so you can follow him on Twitter. (laughs) Thanks everyone. Thanks, Michael. Right.